Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. COVID spread is still high in San Diego. So what are masking recommendations? Starting on March 11th in schools and child care facilities, the governor's office says that masks will not be required. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. A San Diego lawsuit alleges a conspiracy to keep gas prices high. The allegation is that they've conspired to keep costs artificially high in California, which has its own market for gasoline because of environmental rules. And Coronado is out of compliance with affordable housing laws. Plus, hear about a new young adult novel from a local writer. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. California is among three western states that will adopt new indoor mask policies and move away from masking requirements in schools. Starting March 1st, masks will no longer be required for unvaccinated individuals, but will still be strongly recommended. Mask requirements in schools will be dropped on March 11th. And while the announcement will have major implications for COVID guidelines, the news comes as many regions in the state are still deemed high-risk COVID areas by the CDC, meaning that indoor masking is still recommended. San Diego County is among those regions listed as high-risk. Joining me now with more is KPBS health reporter Matt Hoffman. Matt, thanks for joining us. Hey, Jade. The CDC still categorizes San Diego County as high-risk. What does that mean for recommended masking practices in the region? So this new CDC guidance says that if a county is in the high risk category, that they're recommending that uh, everyone wear masks in indoor settings. And that's where we know that those are higher transmission risk settings. Um, There's also some state uh, guidance that we have out there right now uh, that says, you know, it's recommended uh, that you wear a mask in indoor settings, but those who are vaccinated, as we found out a couple of weeks ago, uh, no longer have to wear their masks indoors. Uh, Now we're getting this new updated guidance that just came out from the governor's office uh, saying that soon those who are unvaccinated will also no longer have to wear masks. Uh, So it's definitely a shift that we're seeing here across California. Um, At the end of the day, uh, masks are still being recommended in indoor settings, uh, especially when we're in that high risk category, which the CDC says we are in, uh, but they're not mandated. Why move from mandates to recommendations when many of the regions are still considered high risk? 
Well, Governor Newsom's team says that they're following the data and following the science, and they say that they're watching as cases and hospitalizations continue to trend in the right direction. Uh, So they say that's why this guidance is coming now. Also, the CDC, in terms of their guidance that came down on Friday, they also said the same thing, You know that there were a lot of counties that were more in the high risk category before that are now moving to this low and medium risk. Because in the CDC framework that they put out Friday, there's a low risk, a medium risk, and there's a high risk category too. In low risk, they're just saying, you know, wear a mask based on per- personal preference. I mean, the medium risk, you know, those who are immunocompromised or maybe at high risk, consider wearing a mask. But it's interesting, you know, we're in the high category here in San Diego County. Uh, the CDC has a little tool online you put in your county. It it's, gives you specific recommendations, really simple. Uh, next to us in Imperial County, they're also in the high category. But interesting, just above us in Riverside County and in Orange County, they're in the medium category. So masking is not being recommended by the federal government indoors there. So is it that case rates aren't as important as hospitalization rates then? Yeah. So it's a number of factors that they're taking into account. It's case rates. It's also looking at hospitalization, hospital capacity. Um, That's the metric that the CDC says that they're looking at. So what exactly does it mean that parts of San Diego County are deemed high risk? Well, we've seen this in the county's updates. You know, they do regular updates to the Board of Supervisors. Uh, we are in the red transmission categories. Now, when you look at that compared to the most recent Omicron surge, you know, definitely on the downward trend, uh, but levels of transmission are still high. And that's something that public health officials at the federal and state level and the county level are taking into account uh, when they look at some of these decisions. As we mentioned, new guidance on masking was issued today, which will affect masking requirements in schools and public areas. What do we know so far? So we knew something was coming this week. The governor's office had announced that on Monday today that they were going to be uh, putting out some sort of decision on this or kicking the can down the road. Starting on March 11th, uh, in schools and child care facilities, the governor's office says that masks will not be required. Now, they will still be strongly recommended. And as we know, too, in the CDC's plan, being in that high risk category, which we are considered by them, masks are recommended in indoor settings, also applying to schools. You know, the CDC for a long time has recommended universal masking in schools. Part of this new plan that they sort of laid out says that they're not recommending universal masking anymore, but if you're still in that high-risk category as a county, uh, they are recommending masks uh, in, in indoor settings, which include schools. There seems to be a lot of different sources for guidance on masking, whether from the county, the state, or the CDC. Are we seeing county residents take a sort of pick and choose approach when considering guidelines? I think at the end of the day, it's going to be a personal decision, but we have so much information out there, right? We know how the virus spreads. Um, We know that, you know, in outdoor settings, it doesn't spread as much. We know in indoor settings, especially when there's poor ventilation, you know, not a lot of windows open, that it can spread very easily. And we know, especially with Omicron, the variant, that it's very contagious. And so that's where some of these public health recommendations are coming. You know, we're not seeing uh, at the original outset, you know, when it was masking everywhere outdoors, uh, it's kind of these, as the governor's team calls them, targeted interventions or targeted recommendations. So people at the end of the day, especially when there's no mandate, they're going to have to make the decision for themselves, but there's plenty of information out there uh, to help people make that decision. Uh, We know masks work, uh, but at the end of the day, it'll be up to them. Governor Newsom recently adopted an endemic policy approach to fighting the pandemic in California. Uh, Do we know what that means for masking? 
Part of that plan talked about targeted interventions, as I just mentioned, uh, meaning that there could still be times where, you know, say we get another surge uh, coming up in a couple months, or we see another surge coming up next winter, as we've seen, you know, kind of this roller coaster that is the pandemic. There may be some more of these calls that say, uh, hey, you know, in this area, we need universal masking, or in this area, we need universal masking. So they didn't rule out any more mandates coming. Uh, they did say part of that endemic plan, they were going to be very upfront and open with community and letting people know why they're doing this. Uh, you know, cases are increasing, we're losing hospital capacity, and this is something that needs to be done. So we'll have to see if that comes up in the future. I've been speaking with KPBS health reporter, Matt Hoffman. Matt, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Jade. Part of the U.S. reaction to the invasion of Ukraine has centered around its possible effects on the Western economy. Experts advise us to brace for higher inflation and fluctuations on Wall Street. And much of the country is concerned about gas prices, maybe going as high as $5 a gallon. Well, in San Diego, we're practically there already. And not all of California's highest-in-the-nation gas price has to do with Ukraine. In fact, a long-fought class-action lawsuit that blames our high gas prices on oil company collusion may be coming to a head in federal court. Joining me is San Diego Union-Tribune reporter Jeff McDonald. And Jeff, welcome. Good morning. Thank you for having me. This lawsuit started way back in 2015. Its plaintiff is an Escondido gas retailer. So who's being sued and why? Well, many of the major oil companies are named as co-defendants in this case. Chevron, BP, which is formerly British Petroleum, Shell, Valero, and, and a couple of others. The allegation is that they've conspired to keep costs artificially high in California which has its own market for gasoline because of environmental rules. Now, our higher gas prices are usually attributed to those higher emission standards and additional taxes, but this suit claims that's not the case? Yes, that's exactly right. There is a uh, stricter emission standard in California that requires uh, refiners to seasonally blend their gas to reduce emissions you know, from cars. And that's traditionally been blamed as the chief culprit for the high gasoline prices in California and the local and state taxes as well. Uh, the federal tax is uniform across the country. The lawsuit alleges that these uh, defendants have colluded to, they shared information and conspired to keep prices artificially high, even beyond the costs associated with the seasonal blends. And they do that through... Uh, communications that the lawsuit alleges are improper. You're not supposed to be sharing confidential information with your competitors. Uh, and we're talking about things like uh, how much oil they plan to import to refine, uh, maintenance schedules for some of the refineries around California. When they go down, of course, production goes down and that reduces the supply, which helps keep the price high. So those are some of the activities that the class action case is asserting as being responsible for the high prices California has been paying for many years. And do the plaintiffs actually have evidence of collusion? Well, it depends, of course, how you define evidence. The complaint and the court records uh, do show uh, communications that appear to violate some of the company's standards and practices as far as communicating with other traders and other executives. There are uh, emails and other communications between parties 
that appear to show sort of a friendly relationship. And they're sharing information about maintenance schedules of their refineries. They're sharing information about how much crude oil they plan to import and where they, they're going to take it, whether it's in Northern California or Southern California, all the sorts of things that uh, company executives would use to determine how much of their own uh, commodity to produce. The oil companies, of course, say that that's not evidence. That's just evidence of them doing a good job and that part of their obligation to their companies are to stay as well-informed as they can be and for traders to be sharing information because they need this sort of information to do their jobs effectively. So that hopefully will get to a jury or the judge will decide that there's not enough uh, evidence to move forward to trial. That's what's at issue right now. And a ruling is expected as soon as this coming week. How much does the lawsuit claim is owed to Californians because of this alleged collusion? Well, it's tens of billions of dollars. So it's a lot of money. For example, they looked at uh, going back 10 plus years and their allegation is that every gallon is overpriced somewhere between 5, 10, up to 20 cents per gallon. So you can imagine that being a lot of money. Uh, they did do a uh, um, damages assessment uh, through one of their own experts. These are the plaintiffs, I'm saying. And it came out at about $23 billion was the number I saw in uh, the court filings. So that doesn't mean that they would win that. But under class action rules, you can get triple the damages if you prevail. So we could be talking as much as 60 or 70 billion. Obviously, that's not likely, but it is a multi-billion dollar uh, case. And uh, the number of lawyers defending the case and even bringing the case uh, is indicative, I think, of how much money is at stake. There's dozens of lawyers involved. When I was in the courtroom the other day, there were 24, 25 lawyers, I think, by my count. Wow. This suit was filed back in 2015. Why has it taken so long? Well, you file the complaint, and then that just is the beginning. And then you start doing what's called discovery, and that's the legal process of collecting evidence. And so that means requesting documentation, uh, interviewing people, sometimes through deposition testimony, which is you know under oath sworn testimony. And these things can take a long time. They did prevail enough to proceed to the hearing last week was the oil companies bringing what's called a motion for a summary judgment saying, hey, judge, there's not enough evidence here that's been collected in recent years to warrant going to trial. Uh, that's the decision the judge is uh, weighing right now in a tentative ruling. She leaned toward the defendants and said that uh, she's leaning toward dismissing the case. However, she did ask for additional information, which will be submitted, I think, as soon as today. And then a ruling is uh, expected uh, in coming days. So we'll see if it makes it to trial or not. Have there been any other lawsuits similar to this one? Is this the first time that this strategy has been used? Uh, yes, there have been a lot of lawsuits. I don't know about how many, but multiple. Uh, and no, it's not the first time. These are really sophisticated players. The oil companies, they have, you know, they're smart people. They have great lawyers. And uh, they've been sued numerous times. I don't think any have prevailed, uh, certainly not the class action consumer cases like this one is seeking. I mean, there's like I said, they're seeking billions of dollars in damages. On the other hand, uh, there is uh, some evidence that they have shared information that appears to violate some of their own protocols. So we'll see what happens if these plaintiffs don't prevail at the uh, district court level, they're likely to appeal to the Ninth Circuit Court and hopefully get another hearing up there uh, because they've invested, you know, six, seven years of their time and money into uh, these allegations. And you say that final ruling could come down this week from the San Diego court. 
Yes, the federal judges have a ton of discretion as to when they issue their rulings. After the hearing Wednesday in uh, the Southern District here, she did ask for some additional information, which I think is due today. So presumably she'll consider that information and uh, make a decision perhaps as soon as later this week. I've been speaking with San Diego Union-Tribune reporter Jeff McDonald. Jeff, thank you. Hey, thank you. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. Some of the homes on Coronado are among the most expensive in the world. I mean, it really represents just how unaffordable it is to live in San Diego. For example, there's a 12-bedroom oceanfront mansion listed on the real estate site Redfin right now for $36 million. But even though the island is known for being home to the very rich... It must also comply with the state's laws around affordable housing. KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen says Coronado is out of compliance with the state's affordable housing laws, and a crackdown from state officials doesn't appear to be coming anytime soon. Andrew joins me now with more on what's happening. Andrew, welcome. Hi, Jade. Thank you. So can you paint the picture on Coronado when it comes to affordable housing? Well, there are a lot of ways to describe a city's unaffordability. Of course, as you mentioned, there are the mansions that you can list with the mind-boggling price tags. But in Coronado, even modest homes are outrageously expensive. You know, I was looking at the real estate listings as well. There's a one-bedroom condo, about 750 square feet, that's listed for $1.25 million dollars. There's a, a two-bed, one-bath house listed for $1.5 million. And then if you're renting, you know, a studio apartment might go for $2,200 per month. But of course, there are so few apartment buildings in Coronado. It's mostly very low-density housing. You know, you're more likely to find, say, a two-bedroom home or so with a that rents for about $6,000 or more, sometimes a lot more. But then when you also consider how many service sector jobs Coronado has, you know, it's a tourist town. There are lots of housekeepers that work in the hotels, retail workers that work in the shops, uh, you know, the people who keep the city's tourism economy going, not not to mention the teachers and the government folks who, who keep the city running. They feel the crunch the most. And You know, the state requires cities to come up with a plan for future growth that includes affordable housing. So how does that work? Yeah, the state requires local governments, so cities and counties, to plan for enough homes to meet the region's needs. And this is a a process that happens every eight years, and local governments are supposed to create what's called a housing element that basically says, well, here's where we're going to zone for more density so that, you know, our growing population can actually have homes. Here's how many, you know, homes we can get off of this lot and that lot, etc. 
the the law that created this process several decades ago was uh, frankly pretty useless. It was not effective at preventing the, the current housing shortage that we have today. So in recent years, the state legislature strengthened the law. Cities now have to account not just for future growth, but also for factors like crowding. So, you know, if you have two or three uh, families doubling up or tripling up in a home, um, that's a sign, obviously, of, of a housing shortage, and you have to factor um, those things in. There's also a, a new requirement to analyze racial segregation and actively take steps to undo it to achieve racial integration. And housing elements are also supposed to analyze the likelihood that the housing that's in the plan will actually get built, because it often doesn't. Of course, redevelopment is ultimately up to the property owner. It's not up to the government. So because you know housing and density often just remains an idea on paper, cities um, you know, very often find all kinds of ways to prevent it from happening with various kinds of regulations. Cities are supposed to look at, okay, how likely is this housing to actually get built? And if it's not likely to get Get built, then you know you have to plan for even more of it. All right. So, so what did the state specifically find wrong with Coronado's housing element? There was a nine-page letter that was sent in November, and there's a long list of violations. The state said, Coronado, you can dispute the number of homes that you think you need all you want, but the state, we officially are going off of the actual number that was determined through the official process, which is 912 homes. The city of Coronado chose to zone for only 344, so a little bit more than a third. A big section of this uh, letter from the state was on uh, fair housing, uh, or what's called affirmatively furthering fair housing. That's that active step the city's supposed to take to achieve greater racial integration. And they said that, you know, the city ran some numbers and found no racial or ethnic concentrations of poverty. But what the city is really supposed to do is analyze for any types of racial concentrations, including racial concentrations of wealth. So, you know, Coronado doesn't get get off the hook by saying we have no poor black or brown neighborhoods here. They have to also analyze, okay, you know, we actually have an overwhelmingly white and overwhelmingly wealthy population, and that that is segregation, too, that has to be addressed. Mm-hmm. Uh, the state said they didn't analyze how likely sites would get actually redeveloped. Like I said, the list of violations is very long, and so if the city is really serious about correcting them, then the work they're going to have to do will be quite extensive. And what are the consequences cities can face if they don't have state-certified housing elements? Well, a pretty immediate consequence is they they can lose access to some pots of state funding, so funding for infrastructure or affordable housing. Um, But, you know, for a city that has Coronado's wealth, that is not a huge threat. And this was actually spelled out quite uh, explicitly by a city council member named Michael Donovan when the city council was meeting about its housing element last June. Um, Let's hear a bit of what he was saying. You know, they can cut funding, uh, which to me, I don't, that's, that's the least of our worries at this point. But I just wanted to point out, first of all, that that is an issue, but that in our discussions offline, it, that this probably wouldn't occur with, with our active lawsuit and with other things going on in their process, we would probably have a few years before they might get serious about that. So, 
clearly, you know, he's kind of spelling out, we know we're breaking the rules and we could face consequences, but um, the state's going to be busy dealing with all the other cities that are also out of compliance. So we could maybe fly uh, under the radar for a while and, and get away with this, at least for the time being. So what does Coronado say it's doing in response to the state's critiques? Well, I asked a, a city planning official, uh, you know, what are you what are you working on in response to this letter from the state? And uh, what they told me was, uh, we've re-engaged with our consultant. It, it was an outside consultant that actually wrote the housing element. They're, you know, going back to them and asking for some revisions. But it, it, there haven't been any public meetings on this issue. Uh, you know, it hasn't ever been brought forward to the city council or any other city bodies. So it, it's kind of unclear what direction the city is is giving to uh, that consultant to actually fix the housing element. This issue of how many homes Coronado is supposed to even zone for is a really fundamental issue and a question that that has not been uh, resolved, at least in the city's eyes. They're actually suing to lower their allocation of housing, um, but they lost and they're, they're appealing it. So, you know, they say they're working on it, but exactly how quickly and how um, earnestly they're working on it is kind of unclear. You say it looks like the state won't be enforcing this law anytime soon. Why not? Coronado is definitely one of many cities in the state that is out of compliance with state law, but it is there haven't been as many cities that are just saying we're not even going to zone for the number of homes that the state has told us to. So that is something that sets them apart. And, uh, and from, you know, other cities. And I sat in on a, a roundtable discussion with the, the head of the state's housing accountability unit, who's really in charge of enforcing these laws. And I asked him, you know, what's the next step for Coronado? And he didn't really have a clear answer. He said, we're talking about it. We're thinking about, you know, when do we escalate to the next level? And uh, they just don't know yet. I've been speaking with KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen. Andrew, thank you very much. Thank you, Jade. In March, California's Reparations Task Force will debate who should be eligible for direct payments to compensate for slavery and its lingering effects. One of the questions facing the task force is whether special consideration should be given to descendants of those enslaved in the United States. Even though California entered the Union as a slavery-free state in 1850, that does not mean slavery didn't exist here. As gold rush prospectors flooded the state, enslaved black people were sometimes imported to work in the mines. And even black people who entered the state free from bondage didn't always stay free. In fact, California law allowed slave catchers to abduct free black people and take them to slave states and sanctioned the re-enslavement of blacks freed by their enslavers. As we continue to cover the push for reparations, we're diving back into the history of the very last case of the enslavement of black people in California. Reporter Asal Asanapur brings us a story first aired in early 2020. <laughs> I woke up this morning with my sitting in the first row of St. Andrew's African Methodist Episcopal Church, right up close so I can hear the choir. All around me, pews are filled with worshipers, mostly older Black folks, and many have been coming here for generations. St. Andrew's is the first African-American church on the West Coast. Hallelujah. 
Good morning, St. Andrews. St. Andrews is the best kept secret in the entire city of Sacramento. This is Reverend Philip R. Cousin Jr. We were organized prior to statehood, so that gives us a, a bit of a foothold here. St. Andrews was founded in 1850, a few months before California entered the Union as a free state. But many African Americans were still brought here as slaves during the gold rush. This church was created by them. It was established by free and former slave people of color who come into an area and the first thing that is done is to establish a community. And at the center of that community is always a church. And the man at the center of that church, the man who founded it, was named Daniel Blue. He's not someone they tell you about in school, but his story altered the course of California history. Daniel Blue was a former slave from Kentucky who came to California as a free man and made a fortune mining on the Sacramento River. He opened a laundry and bought a house right next door to the pro-slavery governor. Unafraid, he started the church and held its first service in his basement. You take a Daniel Blue with everything to lose and very little to gain by putting himself out in the way that he did in this community, and yet that is what he did by choice. And that, that speaks to a strength of character that I like to think came from the church. In the church, Daniel Blue even opened a school for Black and Native American children, soliciting money when the state refused to fund it. And so St. Andrews became ground zero for anti-slavery and social justice activism. In Sacramento, it was St. Andrews that was able to pull together a coalition of people of color and say, look, we can go to the court and demand these rights. We can go to the state and demand to be counted as citizens. As the first black church in California, it became the model for other African Methodist Episcopal churches around the state. In a word, Daniel Blue's influence was... Revolutionary. But Daniel Blue left another mark that even the Reverend didn't know about. He freed California's last known slave. I wonder how we can know so little about a man with such a huge impact. So to learn more, I came here to the Center for Sacramento History, where you just push a button and a wall slides open like something from a mystery movie. Behind the door are stacks of shelves, stuffed with dilapidated leather-bound newspapers and hundred-year-old court records. Kim Hayden is an archivist who's helping me sift through these documents and decipher the 19th century cursive. We have things like this 1864 probate case, which is the actual file written in 1864. So this is the case. The case is People v. Gammon, in the matter of guardianship of Ada, a.k.a. Edith. Edith was a 12-year-old slave brought to rural Sacramento from Missouri. Walter Gammon was a local farmer who illegally bought her. This is 1864. It's nearly 15 years after California became a free state. Witnesses say Gammon beat Edith and left her without care or clothing. But somehow Daniel Blue heard about Edith. So he filed a petition in county court, which forced Gammon to bring the girl to the judge. This is the habeas corpus for her reading. We command you that you have the body of Ada, 
or Ada, a colored female child by you. In response, Gammon, the slave owner, said Edith was there, quote, of her own free will. And it was such a typical slaveholder response. Like, oh, I'm taking care of her. I provide for her. I'm giving her room and board. I feed her. I clothe her. Um, which is what, like, southern slaveholders would say. Like, what would they have without us? So Daniel Blue requested that he become Edith's legal guardian. And the judge ruled in his favor, saying that Gammon had, quote, unlawfully and illegally detained and restrained Edith. What makes this case so significant is the timing. Because only a year before Daniel Blue's petition to the state courts, California lifted a law prohibiting African-Americans from testifying. So Daniel Blue saw an opportunity and he took it. And those Black witnesses, the people who detailed how Edith was abused, were able to testify on a young slave's behalf. I wanted to know whether Daniel Blue was celebrated in his own time by the people in his community. And once again, the Center for Sacramento History held the answer. Archivist Kim Hayden pulls out a leather-bound newspaper from the dusty archives. We're looking for Daniel Blue's obituary. Oh, there he is, there it is. It's titled, An Old Man Gone. An Old Man Gone. For a Sacramentan to have said he did not know Uncle Daniel Blue was to argue his ignorance of the city and its people. The obituary describes Daniel Blue's accomplishments, intellect, how he was beloved by black and white people alike. But there's no mention of how he freed a little girl from slavery. I later learned that the 1870 census lists a woman in Sacramento named Ada, Edith's nickname. She's 19 years old, which is the same age Edith would have been. She's married to an African-American man, and they have a one-year-old son. She has been so good. He has been so good to me. In my darkest hour. In my darkest I wasn't able to reach Edith or Daniel Blue's living descendants for this story. But I can see his legacy lives on with St. Andrews and the worshipers who come together each week. Reverend Cousin says together they're carrying out Daniel Blue's vision of community, education, and social action. Whatever we do out there is an expression of what we have learned and profess to believe in here. And so we encourage everyone to participate at every level in the life of a community. And certainly that means exercising the right to vote, particularly since that is not a right that has been ours for a very long time. Reverend Cousin says voting is the antithesis of standing around and waiting for something to happen. Voting is doing it, much like establishing the first black church in California or adopting a little girl out of slavery. For the California Report, I'm Asala Sanapur in Sacramento. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, 
Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. San Diego writer Liz Huerta's debut young adult novel, The Lost Dreamer, comes out this week. It's a fantasy inspired by ancient Mesoamerica in a world where some women have the ability to dream the truth. They're seers, known as dreamers. The book unfolds as two young women struggle with their gifts as the world around them is rapidly, terrifyingly changing. Huerta is a celebrated short fiction writer and essayist and has written for The Rumpus, The Cut, and The Portland Review. And she spoke with KPBS art editor and producer Julia Dixon-Evans. Here's their conversation. Hi, Liz. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, Julia. Thank you for having me. So in The Lost Dreamer, we follow two story threads about two distinct characters living very different lives. First, we meet Indir. And before we talk about her, would you read a little bit from the beginning when we first get a sense for Indir's world? Absolutely. This is the beginning of the book. The wail of a far-off conch shell woke me from my already broken sleep. I wanted to wail in response, in grief, in terror. Dogs began barking on the outskirts of the city. Unfamiliar drum rhythms pounded in the distance, echoing off the stone walls of our temple. I rose, blood rushing through my body as I swung from my hammock. An answering conch blew thrice from our own warriors, three cries for peace. Delu and Zeri stirred. I knew they were in dreaming, their bodies struggling to pull them back. I kissed them each softly, singing a small waking song, my voice breaking. Liz, can you tell me a little bit about who Indir is and what is on the line for her, not just in this moment, but in her world as a whole? Absolutely. Indir is a dreamer in the sacred city of Alcanza. She was born to a lineage of women who, when they sleep, can enter another dimension, kind of a spirit world, to get information to bring back for the citizens of Alcanza and the surrounding areas. The dreamers are a sacred lineage. They help all the people. And Indir has a few secrets, including the devastating realization that she is no longer able to dream. And can you tell me a little bit about some of the things that these dreamers go into what they call the dream to discover and to share? They have so many different gifts. One of the sisters has the ability to enter the dream and view weather patterns to see what crops should be harvested and which lands should go follow, what kind of animals to hunt, kind of a conversation with the natural world. One of the other sisters dreams possibility, the ability to kind of see what different decisions can play out and how they can affect the citizens of Alcanza and the surrounding areas. India, until she stopped dreaming, had the rare ability to dream truth where she could see things absolutely clearly and they would come true. 
Okay. And then in the other thread, we have Saya, who she has grown up not quite knowing what sets her apart with a mother who uses her for gain. So she has a, a very, very different experience with dreaming and, and real life, or what you call the waking world, than Indir does. Can you talk a little bit about what a character like Saya brings to the story? Yeah, Saya has a gift, but really no context on how to use it. She's had no training. She has no lineage. All she has is her mother, who is pretty manipulative and abusive towards her and uses her gift for her own gain, claiming it as her own. So Saya has this beautiful magic, but really has no concept as to what it means and um, who she is. And in this magical realm, the ancient traditions and the power dwell primarily with women. And this also feeds tension later in the book. Can you tell me what drove this choice and and what it means to you to have women at the helm there? Well, I've read so much fantasy over the years. And for a long time, it was a very male-dominated field. And that has shifted. And when I went into this story, I really just wanted to center women I wanted to center mothers and daughters and sisterhood and aunts and chosen family, just because for me, I come from such an incredible lineage of women, an incredible mom, aunts, sisters, extended women in my family. And they really are the backbone of my family. And I think in a lot of other Latinx families. So I wanted to center our stories as sacred, that we have these gifts that carry us forward and are caretakers and creators and visionaries. I just wanted to celebrate us. I also love the way that this world tackles death and memory. Can you talk about what inspired you to write that kind of world where there's a reverence and awe for the lost? It's it's not necessarily glorified, but it is a different approach to grief. I think that's primarily cultural. In the United States, in, in the culture we have, we don't really have a death culture. Death is very sanitized and kind of put away. Even driving around California, you don't see graveyards anywhere. And Within the cultures I grew up in, Mexican and Puerto Rican, death is a part of life. And there are these long, beautiful mourning processes. There's Day of the Dead. There's this really intense reverence of those who have become ancestors. And in my family, at least, we talk about our dead constantly as if they're still with us as a way to honor them and keep them in our stories, in our living stories. And you have referred to yourself as a working class writer before um, you do manual labor and you worked in manual labor while writing this book. How important was your work as you wrote and did it seep into the story in any way? I think so. I worked for my family's wrought iron business, um, as my sisters do. I'm not really good in the office or on the phone. I have pretty intense ADHD. So my father sent me off to be an iron painter, which I've been doing on and off for 20 years. And I think listening to audiobooks all day, every day, and working with my body and looking around at the other workers, uh, many of them of indigenous descent from Mexico and Central America, and trying to place them in a story where they were sacred, where we were sacred. And it just, it all kind of came together. 
And I love that I'm a working class writer. I think there are so many artists out there who are invisible because nobody tells them that they can do the work. There are incredible musicians working in hotels, in the service industry, artists of all shape and size, but we just don't know about them. So I'm hoping that my ability to publish as a working class writer gives other working class artists a little bit of hope. Liz, thank you so much. It has been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much, Julia. That was author Liz Huerta speaking with KPBS arts editor and producer Julia Dixon-Evans. Huerta's debut young adult novel, The Lost Dreamer, comes out tomorrow, March 1st. She'll have a book signing at Mysterious Galaxy Books tomorrow at 7 p.m. It's a blast from the past. While technology has come a long way since the 1980s, one San Diegan says the old school tech is the new school style. KPBS's Maya Trabolsi introduces us to Boombox Chuck, known for his love of retro culture, especially the Boombox. It's an iconic machine. The Boombox is like a bodily extension to Miguel Nunez. I'm recognized for something I never even thought would happen in my life, which is carrying a boombox and rocking a style like that. He goes by the name Boombox Chuck and is well known for his passion for vintage music systems. I'm new school to the old school, but I saw the boombox and I just knew immediately I could be that guy walking around the city with a boombox blasting music. Born in the 80s, an era when boomboxes were prolific in urban American pop culture, his love for the style and music of the time started at an early age. The elements are like graffiti, DJing, be breakdancing, b-boying and b-growing, and MCing, which is like rapping in a sense. Everyone could have a style. Everyone could be themselves. And I think that's what a lot of the culture promoted in the early days. Fast forward to today, when Nunez is not working at Pokey's vegetarian Mexican restaurant, he's often seen walking the city streets, audibly spreading his love of retro beats to all who cross his path. I have conversations with all kinds of people, all kinds of walks of life, all ages, all ethnicities, and I just see something so sacred in that. So maybe by default, I'm reminding people to be themselves, you know, and to express themselves, most importantly, responsibly, of course, you know. His collection of boomboxes is made up of specially selected personal favorites. This is my baby. It's the one I started with. Speakers on top. Check that out. It's about six speaker system, double deck. The only thing hindering his acquisitions is lack of space to store them. Sanyo again, very good brand. One of my favorite, favorite right now. Prize possession, never for sale. Let's see what we got. I will hunt them down every weekend, every chance I get, every flea market. And then you see a boom box out of nowhere, you're like, whoa. And the bigger the box, the bigger the size and number of batteries it requires. Batteries are a very consistent part of rocking a boombox, playing a boombox. Nunez holds hope that a battery company might take note of his mass consumption and possibly help him along the way. It's just like a trip how many batteries I may have gone through. I can't even imagine. I, and that's why now I want to kind of better document it because eventually I want to send the battery company a portfolio like, hey, what's up? 
I could be a potential marketing gadget. And audio cassette tapes are becoming more like treasured vinyl. Nunez says tape sales, especially for local bands, have made a resurgence. Big box, big box. He says most record stores in San Diego sell cassette tapes. Something about the old-fashioned physical copy, reading the credits or the details or the special shout-outs, you know. But there will always be an element of those plastic cassette tapes that no one will ever miss. Out of nowhere, sometimes my tape would just get, like, eaten up. I'm like, oh, no, I had the best mix ever. I'll never get that again. In a time when technology has allowed us to have so much more than we did in the past, to Boombox Chuck, it's the past that feeds the present. For him, the self-expression born of retro culture will always play on a loop. Maya Trabulsi... KPBS News. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.